Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we'll invite you to turn to our uh, golden text scriptures for this uh, series on how to be led by the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 20. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Proverbs twenty twenty seven, The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now we found in the scripture where it tells us that man's a three-part being. He's made in the image of God and God is the spirit. So by definition, he must be and is a spirit being himself. Man is a spirit. He has a soul made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And he lives in a body. Now of those three avenues, the Bible says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. I like a modern translation of that. It brings out the meaning the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord, not the mind, not the soul, and not the body. The spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, these text scriptures tell us that God will lead us by his spirit, that the Holy Ghost should and will and does lead every one of the children of God by that inward witness. Jesus, in talking about something very similar in John chapter 10, talked about the contrast between himself as the good shepherd and, and Satan, who is the thief, who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But he said something, made two comments or two statements in that passage of Scripture where he's making that contrast between himself and the devil. He said, my sheep hear my voice and my sheep know my voice. Now, we've looked at some examples in the Bible, particularly Paul, in the life of Paul, where he was led of the Holy Ghost into something that was uh, uh, difficult, uncomfortable, inconvenient. He was put in jail, put in prison, and so forth. But he knew that he was being led by the Holy Ghost to go where he went. Now, here's the question. If the Bible tells us, and it does, not only in the few references that we just referred to, but in many other places, since the Bible tells us that God will lead us by the Holy Ghost, every child of God, every believer can and should be led by the Holy Ghost. Since Jesus said that my sheep hear and know my voice, why is so much of the church world in the dark when it comes to having direction or obtaining direction from God? God said you'd have it. How come people aren't walking in it? Well, the answer is, there's only one answer that uh, satisfies what the Bible says, and that is we haven't learned to develop our spirits to be sensitive to the leading or the direction of God. Now, I don't know why. This may seem kind of dumb. It seems kind of silly to me. But I can't shake this. I've been thinking all day long about uh, how familiar we are with science fiction movies regarding outer space and uh, or outposts on uninhabitable uninhabitable planets and things like that where these spacesuits have been developed with all kinds of technology and all kinds of abilities and, and all that kind of stuff, none of which comes even close to the intricacies and the miraculous nature of the human body and the way that it's built and designed. But now in these science fiction movies, we wouldn't think a thing about understanding clearly 
the difference between the person in the suit and the suit itself. We understand that the suit enables the individual to operate in a hostile environment in uninhabitable conditions otherwise. But that's not the entirety of the life of the individual. The real life of the individual is after he takes off the suit and goes about his business doing other things. But it seems that if we put ourselves in that example in a spiritual context, it seems that something happened, and I believe that something that happened was an alien force came upon us, came upon the world that God designed for us. And it created a situation where we lost all knowledge, where mankind lost all knowledge of who he is outside of the suit or apart from the suit. And for that reason, the church world, by and large, the vast majority of Christians worldwide, even though they're saved, thank God they're saved. But the vast majority of the church spends all of its time on maintaining, improving, and doing whatever they can to improve the appearance of this suit that they're wearing rather than focusing on the real thing. Now, I want you to turn with me over to Second Peter chapter 1. I believe the greatest need in the body of Christ is to develop their spirits, for us to develop our spirits. It's certainly the important factor, the key and the critical element if you're going to gain and obtain direction from God in life. There's no other way around it. Either God's not doing his job in leading us like he said he would, or there's something that's hindering us from obtaining and recognizing his leading so that we can obtain the victory that he promised. There's no two other there's no other way around it, folks. It's one way or the other. Second Peter chapter one, I'm going to start in verse one. Peter's writing to the church and he said, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice he's talking to Christians. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us by being born again. Everybody understand he's writing to believers. Writing to new creatures in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. He's talking to new men and women. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how grace and peace is multiplied is through knowledge. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying, I know you're saved. I know you're born again. But if you want grace and peace to be multiplied to you, you're going to have to gain knowledge. Verse 3, according as his divine power hath, past tense, has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. I know you're called, he says. I know you're believers. I know you're saved. I know you're in the family of God. And because you've been born again, because you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, understand that his divine power in making you a new creature and causing the rebirth of your spirit 
That divine power has already given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now Paul does not, or I'm sorry, Peter, the author of this letter, does not in any way assume that they have or are living up to everything that God has given them. Any more than we would if we wrote a letter to Christians or the church world at large. We would say the same thing, that God has already provided for you everything that you'll ever need. But we would know full well that not everybody's living up to it. Mighty few probably would be. But notice his power has already done something about it. According as his divine power has given us. All things that pertain unto life. This word life is the word zoe. It's always used when it's talking about the life of God. Jesus said in John five twenty six, he says, For as the Father has life, zoe in himself, so is he given to the Son to have zoe in himself. Same life in John ten ten. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life, zoe, and that you might have it more abundantly. He's not talking about physical existence. He's talking about a quality of life. A kind of life that God himself enjoys. It's a different kind of life than what man in, uh, experiences unless he accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior and until he comes into the family of God. But that life, same life that Jesus was talking about when he referred to himself, that life is the kind of life that God wants you to enjoy. Now that life is what we lost when this alien force robbed us of the knowledge of who we really are. Of course, that took place at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But God wants and has provided every means for you to get back to that original condition. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he will ever be able to recreate the Garden of Eden. But you can be restored to the original condition before the fall. Because the original condition of man before the fall was life. The life of God. The life that was breathed into man by the breath of God himself. That's what God wants to restore you and I to. How's he going to do that? Well, apparently he does it through the new birth. And he does it by the knowledge that comes from the word. Notice verse 4. Whereby. Because these things are true. Because God wants you to experience the quality of life that Jesus had. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these. He's got to be talking about the word, didn't he? That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Don't let the word lust throw you. Every time we see the word lust in the Bible, we think of sexual sin. But the word lust just means desires of the outward man. It just means desires of the outward man. Paul talked about the difference between the inward man and the outward man when he talked about his own struggle. He said, I want to do right from the, from the inside, the inward man, the man that's born again, a new creature in Christ Jesus. I want to do right from the inside. But the man on the outside keeps leading me into the wrong things. Well, that's what he's talking about here when he uses the word lust. It just simply means the desires of the flesh. The desires of the outward man. In other words, this earth suit. The desire to give attention to the earth suit rather than the man on the inside. 
whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, these promises, the word of God, you might be partakers. You don't have to be. You can be. But nobody will force you. If you want to live a life where being saved is good enough for you, God will let you go with that. But there's another opportunity. There's another option. You can develop yourself from the inside through this knowledge of the word of God to be a partaker of the divine nature. Well, Pastor Mike, I thought we were already partakers of the divine nature when we got born again. You did partake of the divine nature. You were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But that may be the only victory you ever experienced in life. Now think about the divine nature. Jesus talked about the divine nature has got to be the same life of God that uh, Jesus said that he and the Father enjoyed, didn't it? As the the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son to have life in himself. Again, that's John 5, 26. Isn't that the divine nature? You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said, Master, we know that you've come from God for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with them. Remember what Jesus said? You must be born again. Except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about becoming a partaker of the divine nature. Now notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not say, yeah, but don't expect you to duplicate any of these miracles or mighty acts. What you don't understand, Nicodemus, is that I'm the son of God and I'm doing these things because that's who I am. But nobody else will ever measure up to that. In fact, Jesus told his disciples just the opposite. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my father. Now, what does going to the father have to do with anything? They're already doing some mighty works of healings and different things like that when Jesus was with them. What does going to the Father have to do with anything? Well, Jesus went to the Father after he was raised from the dead. Going to the Father has to mean opening the door of salvation. Opening the door for mankind to experience this new life. This God kind of life. Let's say it this way. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also and greater works than these shall you do when you become partakers of the divine nature. Have we changed the meaning at all? I don't believe we have. So when when Peter is writing to the church and saying that we've been given exceeding great and precious promises in order to become partakers of the divine nature, he's not talking about being born again. They've already been born again. He's talking about walking in the quality and the, the measure of victory that Jesus walked in himself. That's what being a partaker of the divine nature means in this passage. And notice how it comes. Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Any of you need to experience a greater measure of victory in, any, in some area of your life? Well, there's a promise given to you enabled, to enable you to do it. You don't need one more thing from God than what you already have. You just need knowledge of what he's given you. In order to become a partaker of the divine nature in that respect or in that area of your life. So that you can walk in victory. 
Now turn with me over to James chapter 3. I want you to see something else here. James chapter 3. Um, well, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I'm going to have to, I guess. Let's start in verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, he's saying, don't try to be a teacher of somebody else. For in many things we offend all. The word offend means to stumble. For in many things we stumble. But if any man offend or stumble not in word, the same as a perfect man, that means complete or mature, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, please notice in verse 2, we won't take a whole lot of time with this and read through some of the rest of it pretty quickly. But I want you to notice he says the key to, to conquering the desire of the flesh. Remember what Peter said, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust, the desires of the flesh. He's telling you what the conflict is. The conflict is between the divine nature that you can obtain and you can walk in and the desire of the flesh. James is saying you can overcome everything about your flesh and its desires by controlling your tongue. Do you see that? Notice again in verse 2. For in many things we stumble, but if any man stumble not in word, the same as a perfect or a complete or a mature man, we might say or insert in there a partaker of the divine nature, and able also to bridle or control or discipline the whole body. Whatever problem you're having with your flesh, whatever problem you ever will have with your flesh, the answer is in your tongue. The answer is in the words you speak. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths and they, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. How does a bit work in a horse's mouth? You apply pressure to his tongue. So in the same way, if it turns around a horse... As strong as he is, you can turn around anything in your body or in your flesh by applying pressure to your tongue. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth or the captain listeth. That just simply means no matter how big a ship is, you turn the rudder and keep it in place and the new, set the new course, you can turn a ship completely around. No matter how big the situation or the problem is in your life, no matter how long you've been going in the wrong direction, you can turn that direction around with your tongue. Almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, the reason it seems too good to be true is because we spent all of our time trying to polish up our earth suits instead of dealing with the man that lives in it. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. No matter how big a fire it is, no matter how much destruction it does, it all starts with one spark. 
Now, when the spark is first, when the initial spark first takes place, nobody would consider that the size of that spark would create the massive destruction that a big fire creates. In the same way, you might think that speaking words can't change your situation because it's been this way too long or it's gone too far. That's the point he's making. No matter how small the words seem, they can get the job done. Verse 6 is the one I want you to see. And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity or sin. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Can I ask you a question? Is that the way God made the tongue? Is that what Adam's tongue was like in the Garden of Eden? Before the fall? No, James is telling us what the tongue is like now. Now that this alien force has got us focused on polishing our earth suits. That's not the way the tongue was created. Well, what was the tongue created to do? Well, God put Adam and Eve in charge of the garden. He said to dress and keep it, guard and protect it, work it. How is he supposed to work it? Well, the only example that the Bible gives us of what God did is the work that he endeavored and completed in the creation of the world itself. Ten times in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1 of Genesis, ten times God said, it tells us, and God said. Well, if he created man in his image... After his likeness, an exact duplicate in in kind, then God would expect man to do his work the same way that God did his work in the creation. In other words, the means that God sets forth for man to do the work that he was given to do here on the earth before the fall was through the words of his mouth. But things changed when the fall came about. Things changed when man fell. Then the tongue was set on fire of set on fire of hell. Then the tongue became a, a world of iniquity. The tongue became hooked up to the flesh and the desires of the flesh. Jesus, in talking about this in Matthew twelve thirty four, says, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." He goes on in the next verse, verse thirty five, and says, "A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart." Brings forth evil things. So he's saying that your words can either be for good or for evil. James is telling us the default setting of the tongue. The default setting of the tongue is to speak sinful things. Fleshly things. Things that are contrary to the truth of the word. But remember if you're going to control your body. If you're going to control the direction of your life. All you have to do is control your words. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 tells us the story of when Jesus was tempted of the devil. We'll start in verse 1. Then was Jesus led of the spirit into the wilderness. I don't like this translation. It says to be tempted of the devil. That's not why God led him into the wilderness. God led him into the wilderness to pray and prepare himself for ministry. A better translation 
more accurate translation would be, then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. God didn't send him out there to be tempted. You know as well as I do, you can find the devil without going into the wilderness. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was after, afterward hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. First thing the devil will do is challenge you about who the Bible says you are. Better get prepared for that one. Oh, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, huh? devil will say I remember what you did last week righteous people don't do what you did last week he'll always try to challenge you on who you are and who the Bible says you are but notice what Jesus said Jesus answered and said verse 4 it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God now I want you to notice that word live it's the word zoe Man shall not zoe by bread alone. Jesus is not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about the God kind of life. Now the only reason Jesus is out in the wilderness is because he's putting the things of God first. He's operating from his spirit. If you don't believe that, just fast for a few days. Anything more than a three or four day fast is because you've determined to do something from your heart. Because your flesh is screaming. So Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, what is the word of God? We know of that as the Bible, don't we? So notice what he's saying. He's saying spiritual life is based on the word. Is that not exactly what James, what, uh, Peter said, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Wouldn't that divine nature be the the life of God, Zoe? So Jesus is telling us something. He's telling us that there is one and only one thing that it was made to feed, to fit, and to develop your spirit, and that's the word of God. The only thing in the universe that feeds, fits, and develops your spirit is the word of God. But this is not all that Jesus is doing. He's not just trying to provide information. Not only does Jesus tell us that the word of God is the only thing that can develop our spirits or feed our spirits. He's speaking the word himself. Now remember what James said. James says, if you're able to control your tongue, you can control everything about your body. Well, hunger is a part of Jesus' body, isn't it? I'm sure the temptation to eat was great. It says he was hungry. And the devil's offering him an option, an opportunity. To take care of the desires of his flesh, not even a sinful desire. Hunger is not a sinful desire. He's offering an option, an alternative to the hunger that his body is experiencing. 
But Jesus says that spiritual life is more important than physical life or physical existence. But he realizes that this is a temptation. It's a temptation to use divine power, God-given power, for the benefit of his flesh instead of carrying out the will of God. So what does he do? He speaks the word of God. So we've got a twofold lesson here. Not only is the word of God the only source in the universe to feed and to fit and develop your spirit, but the key to overcoming temptation is to speak from your mouth what the word of God says. He does it three times. Each of the three temptations Jesus answers, it is written. He's not just telling the, Bible, telling the devil what the Bible says. In fact, the devil knows a lot about what the Bible says. The third temptation, Jesus uh, is quoted the Bible by the devil. He said, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, the angels shall bear thee up in your wings, their wings, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Jesus said, it is also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So he's not just quoting the the Bible to the devil so that the devil knows what the Bible says. He's speaking the word of God for the purpose of overcoming the temptation itself. Now turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 was a great crisis for the children of Israel because Moses is now dead. He's gone off the scene. And Joshua has been chosen in his place to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Joshua has been handpicked by God to do something that Moses himself couldn't do. Now Joshua's got a couple of problems facing him. The first is he at least has the opportunity to be insecure about whether the people are going to follow him like they followed Moses. Because Moses, after all, was the one that went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and then brought ten plagues upon the Egyptians. Then when he was chased by Pharaoh's armies, he stood before the Red Sea, raised his hands out toward the water, and the waters parted. It's a pretty hard act to follow. In fact, the Bible says of Moses that there was no one that stood face to face with God like Moses did. Well, that would include Joshua. Now, that wasn't the end of how God used Moses. Moses went up into Mount Sinai into an environment where there was fire and blackness of smoke on the mountain to such a degree that everybody said, everybody down below said nobody could live through that. Not only does Moses live through that, he comes down with the Ten Commandments and his face shines. Joshua knows of all these things. Joshua experienced all of these things. We read the stories of others in the Bible, and I think we just automatically assume that the devil didn't bother them. But if it was you in Joshua's place, how would the devil have bothered you? think you would have ever heard from the devil something like who do you think you are 
Don't you remember what Moses did? Moses struck the rock and water came out in an abundance that was sufficient to feed millions of people or water millions of people for a long time. Moses was the one that when the sons of Korah stood up against him, he said, all right, everybody else stand back. The earth's going to open up and swallow these people, and it did. I don't know about you, but I'd want to pastor another church. I wouldn't turn my back on the call, but I just wouldn't want to follow him. Do you see the point? That's only one of the things he's got to deal with. That's the thoughts of the, whether or not the people would follow him. The most important thing in my thinking that he's got to deal with is how do I measure up just between me and God? Forget about what the people think. What about what I think? Verse 8. God tells him the key to success Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's back up to verse 6. Now let's back up to verse 5. God tells Joshua, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. Now that would be good news for me. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Well, praise God. We got this thing locked in. We've got a promise from God. God said nobody will be able to withstand me. Joshua could think. He said he'd be with me just like he was with Moses. That means the earth will swallow up and devour whoever stands against me like he did Moses. That means if I need to strike the rock, water will come out for me just like it did him. That means I can do the same miracles and the same signs and wonders as Moses did. But folks, I would bring something to your attention. Joshua did not. He didn't have any of the same kind of miracles that Moses did. Now that doesn't disqualify what God promised. God just used him in a different way. But isn't that what we always do? Don't we look at what happened with somebody else and assume that it's going to happen the same way with us? And when it never does, a lot of people get discouraged and give up. But you can't discount what God said. God said, I'll never fail you. There shall no man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Notice the next verse. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto thy fathers to give them. Now can I ask you another question? What's there to be strong and of good courage about when you've got a promise that nobody will be able to stand against you? I mean, if I was Joshua, I'd have this figured out where there'd be fire coming out of my fingers or something. Somebody stands in my way, you don't need any strength or courage for that. So it must not be that way that it's going to work. So God says only be strong and have good courage. 
Verse 7, he tells him again, only be thou strong and very courageous. Now, I'd be wondering about this point. I'd be wanting to ask, now, wait a minute, Lord. You said two verses ago that nobody would be able to stand before me. Now, why do you keep talking about me being strong and courageous? Well, folks, the answer is very simple, and it's the same for him as it is for us. Things don't work the way that we think they're going to work. And it doesn't detract from the supernatural nature or the power of God in action. The only reason that you need to be strong and of good courage in your situation is if you're going to face things like Joshua did concerning the walls of Jericho, for example, where it looks like it's not working. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. This word of God, these promises that God has made, these exceeding great and precious promises whereby you can be partakers of the divine nature. They shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice meditation has something to do with what you say. It's not some Eastern religion thing where you sit in a lotus position and hum. It's not some goofy thing where you empty your mind of all thoughts. No, instead it's something where you speak the word of God to put the word of God in your mind, in your heart. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. Now let me ask you a question. If the key is to do the word, and he just said so in the previous verse, if the important issue is to keep the commandments that were given to Moses, turn not from the right to the right hand or to the left, if being a doer of the word or being obedient to what the word says to do is the issue, why is he telling him to speak it? See, it'd been very simple for him just to say, now look, Joshua, you want the same kind of success and even greater success as Moses? You can have that. You're going to have to keep the law just like Moses did. So why does he tell him to speak it? Because folks, you're governed by your words. The word is the only thing that can fit, feed, and develop your spirit, the real you. Everything else is just polishing the earth suit. All the intellectual endeavors, the mental gyrations that man has developed over the years, it's all just part of polishing the earth suit. And it won't develop your spirit. It won't feed the real you and it will not enable you to find the direction of God from the Holy Ghost. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. I watch this weekly and and I never have understood this. And, uh, well, I hesitate to say anything about it because I don't want anybody to think that I'm criticizing. I'm really not. But even when it comes to prayer meetings, People will come and sit in a prayer meeting and think. 
It's not a thinking meeting. It's a prayer meeting. Now, you don't have to be loud, but you do have to speak. And it seems to me that a lot of people are trying to think the word and get the same results as when you speak it. And it doesn't work. You can think that Jesus is your Lord all you want to, but until you say it, nothing happens. And it's a common thing, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody. If I hadn't had the example of Brother Hagin to follow, who knows where I would have been. So I'm, not, I'm really not trying to throw rocks at anybody. But this much I know. I know there is no greater attack of the enemy than to try to either keep your mouth shut when it comes to the word or speak something that's contrary to it. I've been in situations where people have gotten to talking about my physical condition and my flesh just screamed to tell them what was going on. But my spirit is leading me all the time to call things that be not as though they were. I've got a lot of people that are trying to help me and a lot of people that have done everything in the world they think to do. Everything (laughs) including but not limited to giving me sheep placenta pills. Folks, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. But I'm pretty sure that Parkinson's is not caused by a deficiency of sheep placenta in the body but people are trying to help and I I get that I understand that but you know the greatest um, the group of people let me say it this way the group of people that that have been the least encouraging and the least likely to speak the word of God concerning my physical condition have been ministers And somehow or another, they think that it, that they, well, I don't want to make a generalization. This is a generalization. I don't mean it for everybody. But somehow or another, it seems that ministers think that they don't have to live by the same rules. I've had people say, well, yeah, I know what the word says, but what does the doctor tell you? Like, that's going to help. Oh, let me tell you what the doctor said. That'll just make everything all right. And there's that that temptation consistently in all of us to say what we see instead of to use our words toward the inward man. That along with the temptation for you to keep your mouth shut because it contradicts what you see has in my experience been the number one attacks of the enemy. That's why God told Joshua, speak the word. Speak it so that you can do it, but don't just do it without speaking it. Speak it and do it. Now notice what he said, this book of the law, these exceeding great and precious promises whereby you may be partakers of the divine nature shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein 
The word meditate, one meaning of the word meditate means to mutter. To say it again over and over and over. may be quiet, but as you're still speaking it. It may not be anybody else, but you hear hear you say it, but you need to hear yourself speak the word. Notice what he said, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then you'll never have any trouble and never be tempted. Isn't that what it says? That's what we want it to say. We want to never have any trouble with the devil. We want to be so full of the word of God that the devil never even shows up around us. But I'm pretty sure that Jesus' example tells us that that's never going to be the case. Because we're never going to be as full of the word as Jesus was. We're never going to be any spiritually stronger than Jesus was. And the devil tempted him. See, we want to avoid the problems altogether. We want to avoid the temptations. I'm sure Joshua would have wanted to too. If I was Joshua, I would have said, when I found out about these walls of Jericho, I would have said, okay, Lord, you said nobody would be able to stand against us. Why don't I stand on this hill over here and just speak to those walls, commanding them to fall down? Why don't I just call fire down from heaven, hailstones like you brought against the Amorites when Moses was leading us? Why don't we just demolish those walls that way? I don't know about you, but I like long-range battles. Don't you? Problem is, that's not ever, hardly ever the way that we fight. Most of it is close-quarter combat. Hand-to-hand combat. Or should we say mouth-to-mouth combat? See, we want to avoid the problems altogether. God doesn't look at things the way we do. I would much rather have preferred to never have to deal with this situation in my body. I would much rather never have to do it, never have to deal with it in any form whatsoever. God doesn't look at things the way we do. See, if we don't experience the things that we go through, we never really learn that God will never leave us or forsake us. It becomes theory for us or to us. I heard somebody say something years and years ago, and I've never forgotten it. They said this. They said, I want to learn faith from somebody that's got scars. And folks, I would submit to you that one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul is such a great example for us to follow are his scars. See, it's one thing to know the theory of the word that God will see you through. It's another thing to be seen through. It's another thing to learn that God will sustain you in the process. And lead you through victoriously. God never told Joshua that he wouldn't have trouble. He said that he'd win. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night.
that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. God doesn't even say, I'll cause everything to fall down in front of you so that you can float through life on flowery beds of ease. Everything will come to you like ripe cherries falling off of a tree. That's not what he said. He said, the word will make your way prosperous. And you will have good success. Probably not without scars. But it will work. Remember what Jesus said concerning the subjects of faith? Mark chapter 11 verse 23. He said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Jesus talked a lot about what you say. Jesus lived according to what he said. He told us by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. The words justified and condemned can also be used for victory and defeat. By your words, you'll experience victory. By your words, you'll experience defeat. Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now you and I know that that works instantly, right? As soon as we say it, at least, well, certainly not saying it more than four or five times. Then all of a sudden everything just works out right. Now, there's a word left out of this verse. You shall eventually have what you say. Clearly, that's the meaning. None of us want the eventually part in there, though, do we? Wouldn't it be great if he had said instantly have what you say? Would that really be a good thing? It'd be a fun thing. Would we develop spiritually? Now the Bible says through faith and patience you inherit the promise. Not through faith and instant results. Through faith and patience. See folks, that's part of spiritual development too. How many times... I've heard somebody make a commitment that they're going to develop themselves in such a way so that they hear the voice of God. They don't hear anything within a week, so they give up. Spiritual development doesn't take doesn't come overnight. It takes it takes time. More than that, it takes commitment and dedication, because the time will eat you up if you're not committed. See, for Jesus, there was no plan B. For Paul, there was no plan B. When Paul came to the place where he said, the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city that they're going to put me in jail, bonds and affliction await me in Jerusalem. He said, but none of these things move me. The only way he could say that none of these things move me is if he had committed, had committed himself completely and totally to God and there was no plan B. What about you? Is there a plan B for you? What would it take for you to give up? 
Whatever it is, the devil's searching for it. One thing I found from experience dealing with people for 35 years in ministry. People that have a give up point very seldom come to the place where they know the Lord's leading. The people that are committed, people that are sold out to the things of God, not because they're determined to have something, but because they believe the word's true because God said so. Those are the people that find the will of God for their lives. Those are the people that find direction in the circumstances of life. Those are the people that eventually walk in victory. James said, count it all joy, brethren, brethren, Christians, because we'll all experience it. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, tests, trials, and troubles. Count it all joy. Well, you're going to have to operate from your spirit to do that. I've never been in a test, a trial, or a trouble yet, an adversity yet that was fun. He said, count it all joy, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. In other words, endure. Paul told Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier. James said, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. In other words, there is victory to those that hold fast. There is victory to those that hold fast to the word. There is victory to those that speak the word no matter what they feel, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the doctor says. There is victory, complete victory, total victory to those that won't give up. Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice. And a stranger they won't follow because they don't know the voice of strangers. Say it after me. I hear and know Jesus' voice. I am led of the Holy Ghost. He leads me into the truth of the word. And he leads me into victory in every area of life. Amen. Well, have I depressed everybody? <laughs> These are sobering things, aren't they? But that's true. Every bit of it's true. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.